right, if you have your Bibles, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be at this morning. So uh, we're going through the series, Biblical Justice. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning. We're going to try to get to some of the, the practicals of how we go about uh, more or less the work of relieving or alleviating material poverty. How do, we, how do we go? How do we see that? How do we understand that even within our, our own city here, Philadelphia? So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, and then we'll jump into it. Again, this is Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he states, he's actually making a case for his particular ministry because his ministry has been put into question And so verse 16, he says, from now on, because of all that Christ has done for me, for us, he says, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, he's saying, I don't see people the way the world would see people, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh We don't regard him that way any longer. Even when we once saw Christ as this self-proclaimed Messiah, we actually don't see him as just some sort of self-proclaimed Messiah anymore. For we recognize that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ, notice, this is the important phrase, through Christ reconciled us to him and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. If you haven't heard it, it's like the word reconciliation is coming up again and again and again and again. It's all about reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We therefore implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake... God made Jesus, the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray and we'll jump into it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's intended to revive our souls. Thank you that it's intended to grant clarity, perhaps where we need clarity. And so we invite you even now, Holy Spirit, to bless your word. Teach us, grow us in different ways. Um, God, thank you that this is an ongoing process where we jump into the topics like biblical justice and there's endless details that we could process and think through. uh, And yet you, you, you put us in something of a process to, earn, uh, to learn something of your own heart, to know then how we should kind of walk, um, yeah, walk in this life in a way in which most glorifies you. So Spirit of God, we ask for your blessing, we ask for your uh, insight in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, how many of you have been to the doctor before, huh? Yeah, all right, we, we all fit that, right? So you go, if you have a, an issue, 
something hurts, right? And so what do you do? You go into, uh, you go into the doctor and you say, doctor, th this is what's going on. This is what hurts. This is what seems to be out of place. Now, if you have a doctor who only then works with the symptoms and not with the root issue, do you think that's going to ultimately help you? Yes or no? No. You want to get down to the root cause of whatever's going on, and so you're, you're hoping that the doctor can take the symptoms and read down to the core diagnosis and therefore truly bring help to you. If you get the wrong diagnosis, is that going to help or hurt? It's going to hurt. It's going to mess things up, if not even more than they are already messed up. When it comes to this topic then of like alleviating uh, material poverty in this world, in this city, on your block, for instance, it really becomes no different. If you just deal with the symptoms, it's going to continue an ongoing problem. If you don't rightly diagnose the issues behind material poverty, you're going to be probably creating more hurt than help for those in need. And so when it comes down to it, what we need is a biblical definition for what poverty actually is. So we have to actually get a little bit more deeper. You know, we, we typically think of poverty as kind of relating to material. Like, do you have the materials of life? Do you have the stuff of life to kind of get by? Well, Scripture would say there's actually some things a bit more deep to Think about. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the diagnosis, what is poverty, and then we're going to actually ask, okay, what's the solution according to Scripture? How can we be those who go about this work of biblical justice, seeing something of material poverty uh, alleviated? So first, the diagnosis. Think, you know, you're, you're coming to Scripture as the person kind of with the problem, with the need, with the question saying, all right, Dr. Jesus, like, tend Tend to the issues at hand. Show me the way. When it comes down to it, there, there's a book that's super helpful, and for many of us, we've read through it. Uh, it's called When Helping Hurts, right? And the Christian authors, as they write through this book, talk about how to alleviate uh, the issues of material poverty, and, and they, they tell their stories from their work in urban centers as well as from third world countries, and and as they tell their stories, they actually then come to this, this stunning realization that every time they would go and walk with somebody who's in material poverty, they would ask them, okay, describe to me your poverty. What, what's the issue at hand? And almost never do people actually say, oh, well, here's my bank account. I have no money. They almost never say, well, I just don't have this, that opportunity. They said the stunning realization as they interviewed people and listened to people was they actually found out that these individuals were, were far more, the way they described their problem was far more about their own personal sense of shame or hopelessness, their powerlessness, right? They even give a particular illustration as of, of, a, of a particular like suburb church that wanted to help a, an impoverished neighborhood. And so every so often, you know, what do you, that's the typical thing. You send a bunch of food down to the, to the neighborhood there and begin handing it out. And for several years, this particular church did that. And, and eventually the people of the suburb church kind of 
fall away. Like, I, I, I'm not so sure we want to be doing this uh, anymore. The question is why? And the idea was that when we go down there, it's, we, we can tell something's not right. And as they begin to probe and try to figure out what was going on, some of the men in those very homes would be heading out the back door as the folks from the suburbs came with all the food. Why? Because there was a sense of shame. They felt like this encounter was more so shaming them for what they didn't seem to be able to do, and that is provide for their family. When it comes to this material poverty, it isn't just, let me just give you a bunch of stuff. There's much more involved to it. And so for even the authors of that particular book, When Helping Hurts, they came to the realization that there's something deeper at work here. There's something of a deeper diagnosis that, need, that they need to come to. And so they went back to scripture. All right, Lord, Lord teach us. Dr. Jesus, show us what needs to take place. And so they found in Genesis chapter 1, I know it's a super familiar text, but it shows us everything. It, one of the reasons why we always go back to the beginning of Genesis is because it, sounds the, it sets the foundation work for all of humanity. It gives understanding for all the basic structures of our social fabric as a society. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, they, they found this. God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Now just catch what is being said here. The way God created us is fundamentally by way of relationship, right? God created us, we could say, to be in relationship to him. There's a primary relationship to kind of our societal fabric, right? We are created to be in relationship to him, but then he creates us in his image. So in some sense, we have a relationship to self. We have a self-understanding that we are created in God's image. But then we're created male and female. We are created for community. And so we are created to be in relationship to others. So to God, to self, to others. But then there's that other phrase there, that they were created to have dominion over creation. So in some sense, there is even to be a relationship to creation. They were to kind of unearth the potential of the world. They were, this is what we would refer to as our basic vocations in life. That God has created us in relationship to himself with a self-understanding that we are created in his image, in relationship to others, community, and also then in relationship to creation, where vocation, work, and education, and science, and all those arts are to be recognized and utilized. God created the basic structure of our societal fabric to function within these essential relationships. God, self, others, creation. What we come to find out, however, if you know the biblical story, what happens? Genesis 3, do things go well? Yes, no. We're a small enough crew. This is just weird, like, standing up here preaching while it's, like, a handful of folks. It's, right. 
How'd it go? Genesis chapter 3, did things go well? No. no. So what does man do? But he rejects God's purposes. Adam and Eve saying, okay, like, we're going to kind of set our own definition for right and wrong for how we're going to do this life. So they distort a relationship with God. Does that have a distortion in how they understand themselves? What happens after they sin? What takes place? What are they doing? You guys know the story. Come on. They're ashamed, right? They're recognizing that there's something wrong with me. I'm not what I should be. They're ashamed. There's a distorted idea of who they are. They're covering themselves up. They're hiding from God. Now, what happens in relationship to one another? What do Adam and Eve begin doing to one another? God comes to them and says, hey, what's going on here? What does Adam do? Blame. He blames. <laughs> so now Adam is blaming Eve. Eve then is blaming Satan, right, in these moments. And suddenly we have a breakdown of community, right? Now, if you continue the story, what you also begin to see is also a breakdown in creation, right? So even the curse of sin there's now this unrest within the earth. Now, to do work is much more difficult for Adam. For Eve, childbearing now is a painful experience. So what you have is a complete breakdown in these essential relationships, right? So the fall happens. We see all of this brokenness. But what we further... We don't have time to get into it, but... Um, what we further see is that these relationships then are even influenced on a systemic level eventually. You get to Genesis 6, you have these mighty men and government being set up, and, and you begin to see that the individual influences the system, and the system influences the individual. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, you begin to see really what is the beginning of racial tensions as there's this power struggle and people are dispersed according to ethnicity and now you have war being uh, waged between nations and whatnot. And so you see all of these essential relationships falling apart and breaking which influence greater systems within the social fabric but those systems now also begin influencing the individual and all those relationships. You see, at the core of the human problem is a, co is a problem of relationships. So it's helpful then, when we think about poverty, not to just think in material terms. Oh, this person needs something, I guess I gotta supply that thing to them. It's not just about materialism. Uh, that is most often a, a kind of poverty or a symptom of poverty, but biblical poverty is not just a lack of resources or materials. Poverty is most often the breakdown of these essential relationships. You see, we're all then, in some sense, impoverished, biblically speaking. To lose out on these relationships, to see these relationships distorted, bruised, to have oppression at work within these relationships, there is something of impoverishment, poverty that we're all experiencing. Now it's those who suffer from this 
material vulnerability in Scripture that we see named, named uniquely. We've seen this as we've studied through biblical justice. The fatherless, right? That's realized as one of the most vulnerable in Scripture, the fatherless. Well, there's a breakdown in relationship. There's an absence. There's a loss. What about the widow? What about the immigrant? You see these relational broken, uh, brokenness behind this material uh, poverty. And therefore, when we think about poverty, poverty is the breakdown of our essential relationships. Even the word that we studied earlier, the Hebrew word zedekah, right? Where it talks about justice and restorative justice and helping one another. We could, we could define that word explicitly as putting people in right relationship to one another. It's having right relationships. So at the core of, of this issue of poverty, how the Bible would define poverty is poverty is a breakdown of our essential relationships. Poverty, or, or more to the point this morning than even material poverty, is at core a breakdown of these essential relationships. If we're gonna do some diagnosis, that would be the diagnosis. That behind the symptom of material poverty is a deeper poverty oftentimes of relationship. Now, second, what's the solution to this? If this is the problem, if this is the diagnosis, how do we go about seeing a solution brought to this problem of poverty? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 is what we looked at just a moment ago. In verse 19, the Apostle Paul says that through Christ, listen to the language, God was reconciling the world to himself. What does the word reconciliation mean? When you think of the word reconciliation, what are you thinking? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, all right? Forgiveness has to do with what? Relationships, right? Yeah. You need a relationship for forgiveness to take place, for reconciliation to happen. When it comes to this idea of reconciliation, Paul is saying Jesus came to take all the brokenness of relationship and to reconcile it, to make it right again. Even the Old Testament, the word shalom is utilized. It's always this desire of God's people to see shalom brought to their society. And the main idea is that relationships would be made right again, that there would be something of peace that would be seen within the society, that reconciliation would take place within relationships. And God is saying, Paul is saying here, that it's Jesus who has come to reconcile the world to God, to take these fundamental essential relationships and reconcile them, bring something of healing to those essential relationships. So when it comes down to it, according to scripture, the simplistic solution to this great problem we see of poverty, material poverty within our city, block, nation, world, whatever it might be, Paul is simplifying things and saying Jesus is the solution. That's, stun that's a stunning thing to say when you see the incredible breakdown of everything and, and everyone disagreeing over the definition of what ultimately brings hope and healing, Paul is saying, let me just simplify it for you. Jesus is the great reconciler. He takes the brokenness of these essential relationships and he's come that they might be set back into place, that they might be right again. 
Paul will say in verse 16 that it's because Jesus, the reconciler, that he actually doesn't regard others according to the flesh. What does he mean by that? He's saying that, Paul is saying that I no longer see other people the way the world would see them. I no longer stratify people according to, well, they're educated or they're not educated or they're wealthy, well, they're, they're poor. He says, I don't see them according to those, those, that stratification. I don't see those, them according to those values or that kind of significance. I don't see them with fleshly eyes. I see them as having Christ or not having Christ. I see them as those who need the reconciler or who have the reconciler, Jesus Christ. He'll, he'll even go on to say, oh, by the way, like I don't even see Jesus according to the flesh anymore. He, he's saying, I don't operate in those worldly systems anymore. Those value structures, that stratification of understanding what true significance and value is in this world, he's saying, I don't see that anymore because of Jesus. I don't even see Jesus according to the flesh. You remember Paul's story, right? Paul was the skeptic of skeptics. Like, who is this self-proclaimed Jesus? Let's go bring persecution to his followers, right? And what takes place to Paul is that there is, a, there is an encounter with the living, resurrected Jesus, the reconciler of all things. And so Paul is saying, no, no, I don't see him as just another self-proclaimed Messiah, just another religious figure out there. No, I see him as the essential solution for all our broken relationships and therefore all what we would define of as poverty. Jesus is the solution. He's the answer. So Paul would say, I don't work according to this worldly perspective anymore. What I, the way I see the world is through the lens of Christ, the great reconciler, the one who can bring everything, make everything right again, who can restore our relationship to God, or as he begins to talk about, even restore our relationship in in terms of our own self-understanding. We're no longer the old creation, we're a new creation in Christ. Now my significance isn't bound up in my worldly abilities, capacities, my achievements, or my failures. My identity is bound up in Christ. It's nothing I need to work for, it's everything I get to work from, and therefore it changes my relationship to others, and therefore it changes my relationship to creation and vocation. It brings a whole new world of meaning to the brokenness of life. Jesus is the solution. So Paul then goes on to say, he's like, I'm not the reconciler. This is important for us when we think about how we do biblical justice. Paul is saying, I'm not the guy. I'm not the solution. (laughs) Oftentimes we think we are, especially the the religious world. We're going to step in, we're going to bring some hope and healing. And it's like, no, you're not. You won't do that. We don't have it in ourselves to bring societal change. We don't have it within ourselves. So what does Paul say? He says, I'm not the... I'm not the reconciler, but I am an ambassador, right? I'm not the essence of the solution, but I am a sign that might point to the solution in Jesus. And therefore, he says, verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The hope, the answer, and all of this is Christ. And likewise, just like Paul, we as Christians, we're not the reconcilers, 
but we are ambassadors. We get the privilege to point others to the king of reconciliation, the one who takes this broken world and can actually bring something of healing to it. So if Christ, just follow with me, if Christ, if it's Christ who reconciles us to God, who makes us new, then poverty alleviation is fundamentally the ministry of reconciliation. It's not first all about the materialism, right? That comes into play, obviously. But when it comes to alleviating specifically even than material poverty, it begins with this. It begins with this idea that Christ must be the solution. It is a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, it's a ministry in which I'm pointing people to Jesus, the true reconciler. The goal is to restore people to a full expression of their God-given humanness through Christ. The book, When Helping Hurts, would state it this way. They state, poverty alleviation is moving people closer to glorifying God by living in right relationship with God, with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. And how does that come about but through Christ? Now, does this mean that Christ, we got to be careful, is some sort of pixie dust that just kind of magically makes things heal and go back together? Right? No. No, he's not just some lucky rabbit's foot. He's not just some kind of like one-off kind of thing that we talk about and like Jesus just magically shows up and brings healing to brokenness. That is not the picture of saying that Jesus is the solution, the reconciler to all the brokenness of the relationships that we experience. Many Christians who have had experience and have written on this subject of poverty alleviation will say that there needs to be different levels of reconciliation, right? In some contexts where there is material need, right? What is it going to look like when a hurricane rolls through Puerto Rico again? Is it just going down there, you need Jesus and everything will be great? No, of course not. That's naive. That's ridiculous. But as ministers of reconciliation, does it just become about speaking Jesus or actually becoming the hands and feet of Jesus, right? What do we do? We come and we meet that. We bring something of relief. We're, we're meeting that particular need. We're demonstrating some, something of Christ through our own actions. So yes, when it comes to material poverty and leaving it, there's going to be something of our own material that we're giving away. But it's to recognize that this is not just about materialism. This is about putting something of the gospel on display, putting something on Christ, of Christ on display. So relief in certain situations is going to be needed. But then there's going to be rehabilitation. Where there's been need, there needs to be rehab. And this is where we, we begin to work with people in terms of understanding, okay, how, how they can get kind of their feet under them. How can they, they can engage within, within society in a way in which they can, they can get jobs and find opportunities and begin to see something of their material poverty 
relieved. Again, this becomes a very relational dynamic. What has Jesus done for us? When he came for us, did he just kind of like toss, toss us a little help from, from, the, from, the, from the back? Like he, he didn't just toss us, he came to be help for us. He walked with us. He came to have relationship with us. And so when it comes to material poverty alleviation, sometimes it's going to look like relief. It's going to look like meeting the needs immediately, but other times it's going to look like then rehabilitation where we're coming alongside of people in relationship and helping them out where they are in need. And finally then, uh, as many talk about, there's the process of development. You just don't want to see people rehab. You want to see them actually function in all their God-given humanness, right? You want to see these relationships restored in a helpful way in which... Folks are not only just kind of surviving getting by, but also thriving and doing something with their life uh, in glorifying God. Now, that's a brief, like, run-through of things. Uh, perhaps we could get a little more practical on the individual and church level. Uh, what should this ministry of reconciliation, of material poverty, actually look like when it comes to us as individuals? What should it look like? First, I think there's, there's more to this, and there are whole books and whatnot written on this, and a bunch of different passages that we could go to here and there to fill this out, but I just want to keep it simple for us uh, this morning. As individuals, we meet the needy on common ground. We are not like the suburb church coming in to the impoverished neighborhood and saying, here we are to be your savior. It's a wrong dynamic, right? If we understand poverty as the breakdown of these particular relationships, what do you know about yourself? Can you look at poverty, even material poverty, and see something of yourself? Because at some point, at least on this, there was a spiritual poverty that Jesus came to meet for you. You know some. We are all, in some sense, impoverished. And therefore, we don't come in saying, we know how to do this. No, we come in recognizing that we are fellow people who are broken in different ways and all in need. We, we come to meet the needy on common ground. Therefore, when we come in to meet these needs, we're not seeking to meet these needs as professionals. We're not coming in, oh, we're the experts. We know how your life works, and, and here's, here's all the ways. You just need to, to figure it out and get it done. Here you go. It's not the way this works. We meet the needy on a common ground, recognizing our needs. I... Even when it comes, just to be straight with you guys, even when it comes to the person who's panhandling and you see them and you see the, the material need, and, and we all know we've been duped, right, <laughs> uh, at times, right? And yet when it comes down to it, when, when we think, when we see the need, our first response should not ultimately just be, okay, there needs to be materials given. We should be recognizing that in some sense, we were impoverished. We were in need. Like, 
I know something, spiritually speaking, of what that is. Maybe I haven't you know, ever gone through the worst of the worst when it comes to material poverty, but I know something deep in my soul that's true, that I was an enemy against God, undeserving in every way, headed to an eternity of damnation, and Jesus interceded and came and did something about my need. When I wasn't looking for him, when I couldn't do anything to get out of my problem, Jesus came for me. He did what I could not do for myself. And therefore, when I see the needy, I must first think about, yes, I stand in some sense on common ground. I know what impoverishment is on some level. And I recognize that from there, then, we can begin meeting something of needs. We must meet the needy on common ground. Second, then, we must commit to a relational process. The best way to go about helping others is not to just give off a, you know, a one-off material, you know, here you go. Have a good day, be warmed and filled, catch you later. To truly be about this work of biblical justice alleviating the material poverty uh, of those, we, we need to recognize that this is a long-term relational process. If we're truly going to be the hands and feet of Christ in some sense. Like the best thing, if, 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 if at core is the brokenness of relationship, the best thing, the greatest grace that we can mutually afford to one another is relationship. Will it be tough? Is relationship easy? Just to make sure that you know. No. No, relationship is not easy, right? It'll be tough. There'll be days of fatigue. There'll be a little burnout uh, even at times. And yes, there's going to be, there's going to need to be wisdom brought to bear and all that, but true biblical justice requires relationship. What has Christ done for us? Again, it wasn't one off. Here's some, here's an answer to that prayer that you've been asking for. Here's just some material stuff to get you by. No, he came to have relationship with us, to restore us to God. Finally then, uh, individually, we must keep Christ at the center. Um, When it comes down to it, you will not have the know-how, the capacity. You will not have the strength necessary to come alongside of others in need. We, We don't have even the strength that's necessary to maintain the relationships without there being significant need uh, represented on either side. We need Christ at the center. We need something of the resilience of his spirit. Whether it's relationships or whether it's life itself, life itself is more than we can handle. Can we agree on that? Oh, my goodness, right? It's, it's Isaiah 40 when it comes down to it that, yeah, even those in their prime are going to faint and fall weary. Like this, those who are, you know, in their prime, they're strong, they... They have all the know-how and the way to go about life. Even they will be crushed under the weight of this life. And therefore, as Isaiah 40 says, Oh my, you need the Lord. You need the Lord who is is there to, as, as that text says, to give you wings like eagles, to restore you, to renew you, to help you. We must keep Christ at the center of it all.
So that's individually, some of the practical things that we could do. As a church community, what can we do? Well, um, as many of the books that I've been going through recently, one of the best things that we could do is listen to the community that's around us. Um, There are levels of community life, even within Wissanoming, Tacone, Frankfurt, you know, and beyond. There are levels of community life already present, already there, whether it's, you know, just folks on the block, whether it's the schools in our area, whether it's the businesses that are in our area, whether it's the the civic, And, and it should be something that the church should take some sort of role in, in just hearing from the community, what are the issues, what are the struggles, what are the hopes, what are the dreams, what are the aspirations of the people, what are the obstacles then in seeing those dreams and hopes and aspirations fulfilled? And therefore, how is it that we as a a church can engage the community in a way that's actually truly helpful? In a way, and that's just not bringing our ideals to the table, but also thinking through just what we can do as we listen, first and foremost, to the community. Second, then, we can cooperate with other organizations. We prayed for Esperanza, obviously. Talk about an organization that is doing the work of biblical justice. My goodness, beautiful, beautiful. We can partner and cooperate with other organizations uh, within the neighborhood, within the city. And, and oftentimes when it comes to partnerships, the church gets all out of whack, right? Uh, we begin to think through the, the implications of can we partner with those who may not have our religious ideals, And the answer is, of course, yes, right? When it comes to those who may not be explicitly faith-based, can we cooperate with them? You better believe it, right? We need doctors. We need nurses. We need those who we we can interact with, partner with, because God has given them even something of a conscience, common grace, and gifting that can be that can contribute to the common good. So even as a church, we want to cooperate with other organizations that that may be faith-based or may not be, but we want to be those who engage well, who partner well, and even in so doing are not afraid to share the gospel, right? We're not afraid to share Christ with others. Uh, So we must listen to the community. We must cooperate with other organizations. Um, And then finally, We can't see this as some small piece of the puzzle. Uh, But we need to intercede for our communities. Much can be done through the work of prayer. Much can be done through the work of prayer. To intercede for people is not not just to, you know, gather together as a church and just kind of go through a list. Here are the needs, Lord. Like, do something about this. Prayer is gaining something of God's own heart for the communities that we serve. When we pray, when we lean into him, when we seek his face together, that's where we begin to know something of God's own heart for this community, for the needy in our community. And oftentimes, even as we see through through Scripture, particularly the New Testament, as God's people gather to, to pray and to intercede and to lean into the things of the Lord, God, what is your heart and how should we go about being your hands and feet? Well, God oftentimes shows up and he gives direction. 
It's like you'll see it in the book of Acts again and again. God's people getting together and pray, and all of a sudden, God provides direction. God gives specific wisdom for how to go about different kinds of ministries, where to go, how to go about it. And so, as people, as a church, who would pursue biblical justice, it's important that we would listen to the community, that we would cooperate with other organizations, and that we would intercede for the community then around us. It's important that we as a people would be on our knees saying, God, you are the solution. But if we are going to be ministers of reconciliation, then you got to show us. you got to show us how both through word and deed we might be able to demonstrate and proclaim something of the beauty of Christ. For he is the solution. He is the reconciler, the one who at the very core of our problems and issues can bring hope and bring healing. In closing, here's what I just want to do. Uh, is to spend a little bit of time uh, just interceding. Interceding for um, our neighborhoods, interceding perhaps for the family units, uh, interceding for uh, the businesses, as as well as for uh, the schools and anything else God might put on your heart. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw it on you. Um, Let's take even like the next so many minutes, five, ten minutes. Um, and as the Lord would lead you to just come and to pray. Um, if there are particular things that he brings to mind in terms of the family, then pray through those things. Um, if it's about, you know, the businesses or, or um, even the schools, like, and there's plenty more to think through and pray through. But let's not waste a moment here. Let this be something of our response to the Lord, Right? It's to say, God, we we recognize, yes, Jesus, you are the answer to this. And so let's lift our voices to intercede on behalf uh, of those within within our neighborhood. So I'm I'm gonna kick it off, but then I'm gonna open it up to you guys. Is that cool? We got the, the mic ready to go. All right. So as you feel led, and if there's silence, that's okay. Silence is okay. Um, well, I'll begin. God, we thank you uh, that you have not left us alone in our own brokenness from Adam and Eve on. You've continued to come after your people. And God, when it comes down to it, um, particularly I just want to intercede for the kids in this immediate neighborhood. Jesus, thank you that you are one who welcomed the children. You say, let them come unto me. Thank you that you're you're not so high and complicated that you can't sit with children and, and interact with them on their level. Thank you, Jesus, for your own heart, your own compassion for the children. And I, I pray, God, that there would be a protection around them. Pray that there would be, um, even particularly with, within some of the homes where there are significant struggles at work, pray that you would protect them. God, I pray that you would give them something of, of resilience 
Something of resilience by your grace. Pray that you attend uh, to, to their, their particular needs. God, satisfy their hearts. Even give us, Lord, the, the opportunity as many of them come here and hang out. God, give us the opportunity to speak well of you. Point even them to the one who can truly bring reconciliation, can truly bring hope and healing. So God, may your grace, may your grace rest heavy upon the children in this particular neighborhood. We thank you for it. One of the words that's been on my heart this week has been the word restoration. And I don't think it just means in terms of prodigal relationships, but I think it's the restoration of our hearts to the Father, a restoration of hunger and desire for seeking Him, a restoration for family members who have been gone lost that we have either forgotten or given up on praying that you would restore the heart of intercession in the people of your church. So God, I want to pray your restoration because your restoration and our restoration may look very different because your timing and your purposes may be unknown, unknown to us in that time. So God, I pray for your restoration holy and faultless, your restoration, however it may come. I pray for the restoration of the hunger of the body of churches that are all across Philadelphia, that no longer would they be dead or dying, but they would be rejuvenated, they would be revived, they would be restored to the heart of the Father, fulfilling your purposes, God. That we would truly make an impact in our society and in our neighborhoods, not being seen as the church that condemns, but the church that welcomes and intercedes to restore. God, we need your people to know you again. We need your restoration. Families are looking for hope. Broken families, single parents, we are looking for the hope of a father to fill the void in the absences in our neighborhoods. God, we need the Father to step in for our children. We need the Father to step in in our broken marriages. We need the Father to step in in our broken familial relationships. We need you, Father, so come and restore like only you can do, God. Give us the heart of, the heart of surrender to really receive the restoration that only you can give. We would not have expectations that are unbeknownst to you, God. For you are the God who sees all, hears all, and is all. We give you all that you are worthy of this morning, Jesus. God, I pray for the households um, here and all around represented here. Lord, the 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 time being stuck home together reveals some of our, our relational poverty. Lord, that we would, I would rather sit in a room and look at my phone than sit in a room and look into the eyes of another image bearer of yours. <laughs> Lord, I pray that you would, you would remove and strip away what you need to strip away. 
Lord, that you would cause a spirit of repentance to, to flow through. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you make it so that we would remember what we are here to do, to love you and to love others, or to not, not make an idol out of our own things, Lord, but rather look to you and to love others the way you have radically loved us. So, Lord, for these, for these households and whatever state of brokenness that was felt, Lord, I pray for attention. I pray for uh, relationship to be, again, restored. Jesus, you can do it. Spirit, you see it all. Watch over us. Help us. Amen. Psalms 10 and 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Verse 12. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Lord Jesus, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your protection and your care. Would you give us as a church, as a people, as a community, as a city to know what that looks like, to know how to love love those around us for those who are needy and those who we come across lord would you help us not to just keep driving or keep on moving but that we would be softened because we know your heart for them that we would even take time from a busy schedule to to pull over and pray for them or help them or hear them listen to them lord jesus would you give us a heart to know these people would you give us just wisdom that we would be on our knees seeking your face to know your love, to know your, your heart for those around us, that we would just be in, inclined to know and specifically hear your voice, to know how we can come alongside and love and care and, and offer your love to them. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you help us?
Well, by way of benediction, um, 1 Corinthians 15 states this, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the great reconciler. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Grace and peace to you guys.